This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right, we're going to start. If you guys don't mind remaining standing for the reading of the Lord. All right. All right, today our readings from Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. A little bit different size scripture reading from last week. Two verses instead of the entire book of the Bible. Which thanks to Lauren and Arwen, you guys did a great job. Ben, we pay him to do it, so I thank him on our staff meeting on Monday. Yeah, I'm excited to get into the book of Hebrews, and I actually really enjoyed listening to the whole thing. Um last Sunday. And since my lungs weren't 100% back, that was very nice for you guys to do that. Um, let's pray, and then uh, we'll kind of get start with a little bit of, a, of an outline of why we're calling the series Our Confidence, and just kind of touch on a, a couple of themes uh, across the book, and then we'll spend some time looking at those uh, first two verses and kind of Hopefully, seeing how how important even those two verses are for the for the whole uh, for really for the whole series. So, let's start with a, a word of prayer. <coughs> Ooh, I'll try not to do that too much. Father, thank you, thank you that you sustain us. Thank you that you are so gracious um, and tender to us. You are, you're a, you're a God beyond our comprehension, and yet you speak wonderful and beautiful things to us, Lord, in your word. Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, as we consider this series, that we'd walk away more impressed with what you have done in your son than when we started this morning. Pray that we would have confidence in what Jesus is doing because of what you have said. Help us, help us see that clearly so that we could experience your presence and be transformed and glorify you as we go out of this place, uh, imaging our creator. So I thank you for this morning and even this time to reflect on these verses. In your name I pray, amen. Off there. All right. Um, yeah. So our our series title is our is our confidence, and and, and it's sort of truncated uh, on purpose. Uh, otherwise, it's hard to market anything much longer than a couple of words. Ben doesn't let me do Puritan sized titles for things, um, but it's also to help us sort of reflect on where do we. Where do we put our confidence? 
And I think there's a lot of things in life that we genuinely place our confidence in. Um, I'm super type A, so I place my confidence in my ability to get my schedule and my to-dos done. Um, I have confidence there because I planned and I've done blah, 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 blah. And when that doesn't happen, things get wrecked and everything falls apart. Um, and I, I've had to wrestle with that because I put my confidence there. A lot of times we put our confidence in relationships uh, and, and people, maybe we've invested a ton of time and, and energy into someone and, and, it's, and even in, and that can be a blessing and we can be thankful for that. But if, our, if all of our confidence is there, uh, it's very painful when, when that kind of breaks down. Um, a lot of us put our confidence in our, in our work, uh, in our jobs, maybe just, maybe just having that environment kind of just right, whether it's you know, appeasing this boss or keeping this person kind of okay with the work that we do. We put confidence in sort of that experience um, being a certain way, and when it's not, uh, things sort of crumble around us. Um, a children... Maybe uh, I think with a lot of parents, they're like, we don't put any confidence in that because it's a, it's, a, it's a mess a lot. Um, but, but we do, like whether it's our schedule or their nap times or, or um, our, our desires to see them grow up and in the image of the Lord, we, we put a lot of sort of confidence in sort of how we're handling that situation. And when things kind of get out of control, as they often do, um, we, we struggle uh, and we break down. And so this, the, this series is called Our Confidence um, because God has given us an, an anchor, which uh, is beautifully illustrated by Laura. Thank you for putting that together. Um, but our, our confidence, God has given us something to place our confidence in that doesn't change. That, that doesn't actually toss us to and fro. And, and if we are gonna, if we put our confidence there, as we sort of work through this, this, uh, this book of Hebrews, we're gonna see that our confidence is ultimately placed in a person. Our confidence in pla- is placed in, in Jesus Christ himself. And I wanted to hit just a couple of verses throughout the book of Hebrews to show you how much this idea of confidence just comes up in the book. And we're gonna, we're gonna hammer this kind of home over the next 12 weeks or so before Advent. Um, and we'll, we'll usually cover about a little over a chapter every week. Um, but because we're introducing things, I thought it'd be good to just hit uh, the first couple of verses and, and show how important that is for the rest of the book. But uh, I'm gonna go through a couple of scriptures here just to show you how important confidence is uh, in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 3, verse six, uh, we should have that up on the screen. It says, but, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. And he gives an if here. We are his house, we're, we're his people, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So, so he actually says holding fast this confidence, whatever this confidence is, is sort of contingent on it if we're his house. Uh, it says kind of the same thing in verse 14 of chapter three. For we have, we have come to share in Christ. We're united with Jesus if if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If, if we hold on to our original confidence. Kind of just highlighting the, that's that's a a big important statement. We should know what that confidence is. We should know what we we need to cling to. Uh, Chapter four comes up again, verse 16. It says, now that if we're holding on to our confidence, it says, 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of, throne of grace, confidently draw near to his throne that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So even the idea of our, our confidence is something that we can, we can rest in and that gives us grace and mercy in time of need. We should have confidence that we can go to the Lord and receive those things from him. Uh, verse, chapter 10, we'll go skip ahead a little bit. Verses 19 and a couple verses after that, it says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, so now that I've, we have this confidence, we're 10 chapters into the book, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, so to be in the very presence of God himself, now that we have that confidence, let us draw near. Let us draw near. Not just that, he says, let us consider how to stir one another up in good works and in love. So it's this, it's this confidence that we have in who Christ is and what he's doing. It's this confidence we have in this person that not only gives us access to God, but, but enables us to stir one another up, to love one another, and to, and to produce good works. This, our confidence and where we place our confidence is, is critical to changing who we are. And, and, and to how we act in the world. Oh, go to 10, chapter 10, verse 35. It says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. He's talking about the, the future reality of, of holding fast to our confidence. Not only does it, does, it, does it forgive us so that we can approach the throne of grace, as, as sinners, we can approach God because of our confidence in the gospel, not only does it change us who we are so that we can stir one another up for good works and for love one another, he's like, but our confidence has more than that. It has a great reward. As the, the reality of the new creation, the reality of someday seeing Christ and being transformed into his image, to having every tear wiped away from every single effect of the fall and everything in this creation being wiped away and everything being made new. That's a great reward that comes from our confidence. And then he kind of, towards the end of the book in chapter 13, it's almost like a summary statement. So now we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's a big, that's a kind of in your face statement. when I do that with the microphone on. <laughs> what can man do to me? I can't say that with a lot of confidence. People do things to me that are painful. And I struggle. It's hard. But for him at the end of the book to outline and to explain and to build on our confidence in the person and work of Jesus. If that's where everything about who we are is rooted in, in the gospel, then we can say that and not be snarky. We can say, what can man do to me? What can anything in this created world that can be shaken do 
to the reality of Jesus Christ who can never be shaken, if that's where my confidence is. So as we work through the book of Hebrews, we're gonna be hammering this theme home, putting our confidence in the gospel, putting our confidence in the person and work of Jesus himself. And hopefully as a, as a church, seeing more and more of the beauty of the gospel so that that is naturally, that's just instinctually where our confidence lands in Jesus himself. And we're gonna, we're gonna work through that as we go through the book of Hebrews. So that's sort of why we titled this, this series, Our Confidence. Um, I, and those were sort of just a, a snippet of even some of the things I shared with the, the liturgy team, our team that kind of puts together some of these things like the call to worship that Ben did or even the, the graphic that we have. But this, this idea of confidence is something that's sort of thread through the book of Hebrews and then something that we're going to focus on as we, as we kind of go through this series over the next couple of weeks. Doing, if we're only doing 13 weeks, why stop then this morning and do just two verses? This is, the, this is the shortest amount of scripture we're gonna do this whole time, just these two verses. And I thought this quote um, from Owens has a commentary on the book of Hebrews. It is ridiculous. It is seven volumes for this one little book. We read it last Sunday in like 45 minutes. There's two giant volumes of introductory material. And it, I, I added up, it's like 40 pages of commentary per verse, roughly. <laughs> It's crazy. But there's some good little snippets in there, and I'm sure I won't get through the whole thing, but when you want to narrow in on a verse, it's really helpful. Um, and, I, and I like what he said about these two verses. He says, this is the main hinge on which all the arguments of the apostle in the whole epistle, so in the whole book of Hebrews, do turn. This is the main hinge on Everything turns on what is said in the first two verses. This bears the stress of all the inferences afterwards by him insisted upon. So what is said in the first two verses, this guy that wrote more on the book of Hebrews and I'll probably be able to read the entire time I'm doing um, this series, said that everything hinges on the first, first couple of verses. Everything hinges on the first couple of verses. And the, and the kind of the more I thought about it, I was like, okay, well, if we're gonna do a, a, uh, our confidence as a theme, if, if our confidence is gonna be what we work through as we go through the book of Hebrews, and, and this is sort of the foundation for these things, then, then what we look at there m must uh, flow out of into the rest of, into the, rest of uh, the passage. We can't have, maybe I put it another way, we can't have confidence in the gospel unless we believe and understand what's being said even in the first two verses. It, it, it's super foundational for having that confidence that we talked about as we sort of looked at all those verses in the book of Hebrews. So this morning, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to hit on, on three things in these, in these two verses. I wanna look at the God, the dilemma, and the person of our confidence the God, the dilemma, and the person of our confidence. And spoiler alert, the person is Jesus. I think I've said that a bunch of times, but 
We can't say that enough. Our confidence is in a person. Um, and, and we're, and we're going to talk about how much more glorious that person is than anything that's come before that. But I think before we get to that, we need to talk about the, the, the God that is the sort of the source of all of these things. Um, I was reading another book the, about the attributes of God, and he said something, there isn't a quote for this, but he's basically saying so everything about who we are is affected by our view of God. How we think of God himself actually changes who we are and, and, what we, and how we act and all these different things. And it was an interesting train of thought, but I thought it'd be good just to stop as we look at verse one. Verse one says, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. God. God spoke. God is the one who is speaking this entire time. And I thought it'd be good to just stop and say, okay, well, if it's God speaking... Who is this God that's spoken? What do we mean when we, when we say this word God? How do we even begin to sort of put those pieces together in our head? And so I thought I would just hit on a couple of verses, sort of in the Old and the New Testament, to give us a couple, I'm try, give, us some, what theolo, give us some handles for what theologians call his transcendence. Uh, but use that word in a sentence this week. Um, his, his transcendence. It's this idea that God is utterly unlike who we are and is beyond anything we could ever comprehend. Uh, he, he's, he's glorious. He's majestic. He's, he has weight and wonder and thoughts that are, that are so far beyond us. He's, he's so transcendent. He's so above everything and anything we could imagine that there's actually no way for us to comprehend him. There's no way for us to comprehend him. Look at uh, 1 Timothy 6. This is what Paul says about God. He says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. He's talking about the throne of God where Jesus is, and he's describing the Father in, in the sense he's unapproachable light that you are unable to even be in the presence of. You, you can't, you're, you're unable to, to see that. But he goes on, let's go on to Psalm 145. So not only is this God unapproachable, he's unsearchable. Psalm 145.3 says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. These are the, the, the writers of the, of the Psalms or, or Paul they're, they're trying to give us words to describe how majestic and transcendent God is. And so they just negate a word. You know, certain things are searchable. Well, God is just unsearchable. Certain things are approachable. God is unapproachable. They're, they're just trying, they're trying to get, you, the English language is struggling 
to communicate the transcendence and the wonder and the majesty and just the otherliness of God himself. Paul does the same thing in Romans. Romans 11, 33 through 34 says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. This is after 11 chapters of explaining all kinds of things about God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or has been his counselor? Paul, the, 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 the most famous apostle, the guy that wrote most of our New Testament, is like, how do you even understand God? Even, I, I'm explaining bits and pieces about what he's doing and I'm like, oh my gosh, how in the world can you possibly understand the glory and the majesty and the wonder of our creator? And he's like, you can't. It's, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. He's unknowable. And he kind of, in, in 1 Corinthians, he brings up sort of the, the consequence of this. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, the natural person doesn't accept the things of the spirit of God. By ourselves, we actually can't understand who God is. It says they're, they're folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. He's like, God is so beyond everything we could imagine in our natural state, just the, the things we're even exposed to, we think are ridiculous. We think are folly because it doesn't fit into our little boxes. And, and this is what they're trying to communicate is that God is transcendent. God is beyond anything and everything he could possibly imagine. Revelation um, chapter three, verse eight is a good kind of summary of this. And the, 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 it's, a, it's a picture of his throne and, and John is seeing things that he's struggling to even have words to write down. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a crazy vision. If you, if you look at it, he says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. And in Isaiah, it actually says they use those wings to cover their eyes and their feet and, and another set of wings to kind of keep themselves in the air because they're, they're in this unapproachable light in the very presence of God. These four living creatures with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. How do you describe a God who is always? We don't have, we don't have buckets for that. We had a beginning. We see things end. And, 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 and he's trying to... They're worshiping God and they're saying, this God that we worship, this God that we have to cover our eyes because he's in an unapproachable light. He just was and he just is and he just will be. I don't have any other words to explain how he's beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. And this idea of holy, 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 it's like bold exclamation mark underline. You didn't have that in the original language so you had to add the words to just extra say it. It's this idea that he's completely separate from anything and everything you can imagine. He's holy, and he's actually holy, holy. They're straining to say that the God that you worship is beyond anything and everything you could possibly comprehend. But he spoke. He spoke. And I think that's crazy because if, if he's beyond our comprehension, 
if he's so utterly unlike anything we could ever imagine, how do we imagine him? How do we grapple with that? How do we, how do we connect with him if he's so transcendent, if he's so beyond anything we could imagine? Uh, a quote from The Knowledge of the Holy, um, A.W. Tozer wrote this, I don't know, 80 years ago or so. He's talking about this idea that God is beyond our ability to understand. And he says, what is God like? If by that question we mean, what is God like in himself? There is no answer. If you're saying, what is God like in himself? How can I understand God in the same way God understands himself? He's like, you can't. It's impossible. He's a holy, holy, holy God. So if you're asking to know God like God knows, then you would be God. He goes on to say, if we mean, what has God disclosed about himself? What has God spoken about that the reverent reason can comprehend? that those who respect what he said can comprehend. There is, I believe, an answer both full and satisfying. An answer is full and satisfying. For while the name of God is secret, it's holy, it's, it's separate, and his essential nature incomprehensible, he in condescending love, this, this eternal three times holy God, stepped down, Calvin, Calvin, Calvin says he, he speaks to us like we speak to kids. Like, oh, you're so, so cute, you know? Like we, we, we condescend to the two-year-olds running around because I can't just talk to them like I talk to you. God condescends to us in love, has by revelation, he has actually revealed himself, declared certain things of himself to be true. This is how we have access to God. So we can have confidence, we can talk about this idea that, that the, the God of our confidence is holy, holy, holy. He's transcendent, he's beyond anything we could ever comprehend. But the beauty is that he spoke. He said things. He's, he's brought his incomprehensible nature down to us so that we could begin to understand true and real things about him. He spoke. So what has he said? What's the, what, is, what has God actually said to us? Well, what he said kind of puts us in a little bit of a dilemma. <clears throat> what he says puts us a little bit in a dilemma. He's revealed to us that he's totally just. He's revealed to us that he's pure. He's not, uh, it's another canceling word. He's, he isn't immoral. He, he has no stain of sin. He's revealed to us that he cannot be in the presence of sin. He can't let anyone get away with anything that they've done wrong. He's perfectly just. He knows everyone's intentions. 
He sees everything wrong and he's determined to punish sin because of who he is. I thought one of the places where he brings us up is in Genesis 3, is he be, right after the fall, everything is broken. Adam kind of had his chance. And he begins to speak so that we could understand who he is. And in 3.15, he's talking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Between your offspring and her offspring. He's speaking. We're, we're understanding who he is after the fall. And he's saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put enmity between two sets of offspring and, 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 my, and the woman's offspring is gonna, is gonna crush the offspring of Satan. What, it's kind of a weird way to say it, but, but what, is the, what is the offspring of Satan? You know, I don't know, we go all sorts of places. But Jesus says it's those who, who do his works as opposed to doing the works of the Father. So what are the works of Satan? Sin, really. He lies. He cheats, he steals. He, he rebels against God. That, that's kind of our default mode. Like we're like, we start there. We're, we're sort of born instinctually selfish. We don't wanna give ourselves for others like Christ has given for others. We, we do unjust things. We're not perfectly righteous. And there's probably some weeks where we feel more like the offspring of Satan than we do of the Son of God. Like that's, that's the reality of the fall. I hope I don't have to convince anyone in here that we're all a little bit broken and we, and we sin. That's, that's just who we are. So that transcendent God is revealed that he's gonna crush, he's gonna, he's gonna bring justice. He's gonna deal with that sin. We could trace a couple of different things. This comes up a lot in scripture. In the promise to Abraham, we won't read the passage. He says, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you and you'll be a blessing for all the nations. But he also says, there's a whole group of people in the nation that I'm giving you that are sinning a lot and I'm gonna destroy them because they deserve it. And he says, I'm not even gonna put you in the nation yet, Abraham because I'm gonna let them continue to sin so that I can punish them appropriately because he's a holy God that is perfectly just, perfectly just. Moses is the same thing. When, when, when he says the, the people have been oppressed, they've been in Egypt, they've been struggling, they've been enslaved, all terrible things. What does he do to the people who enslave them? Drowns them in the Red Sea. He doesn't put up with sin. He says, if that's how you're gonna act, I will act justly and fairly because I'm a fair and just God that cannot put up with sin and I'm gonna destroy them. Same goes with David. 
I think the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. It's about the king crushing all the enemies because the, the God's servant sees all the bad things in the world and says people need to be punished for that. People need to be punished for that. So this is our dilemma, the dilemma of our confidence. We have a transcendent God that's so beyond anything we could comprehend, whose wisdom is unsearchable, who's pure, who's holy, 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 who cannot be in the presence of sin, but yet we get to know about him because he speaks. And when he speaks, he tells us that we all fall short of his glory. When he speaks, he reveals his character to us, who he is, what he's like, and we can't help but realize we're not like that. If we're really grappling with who, who God is, and we're, we're understanding how perfectly just and righteous and, and pure and holy he is, and we compare, we feel very low. We feel very inadequate. So it's almost like maybe he shouldn't have spoke. Then I don't have to feel that way. That's only, it's only a part of what he has spoken. John 17, three, I thought was a good verse that, that kind of gives us both of those pieces. He's not just a just God. He's also a gracious God. He's not a God that just cares about being perfectly just, a punishing sin. He should, he shouldn't, we, we wouldn't. If someone did something evil, we want them to be punished. That's, that's how we, we think that way. When there's, uh, I, there was a, a, a trial, I think he was 99. He uh, was, a, was a, in his teenage years, he was involved in Germany killing thousands of Jews. And they put him on trial like last week or something. Because we see wickedness. We see something that's evil and we say we sh we, that should be punished. But God's not just a just God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God. He's a loving God. He's what we sang about how he's a tender God. He's revealed these things to us. And John 17, three says, this is eternal life. Things are broken because we're broken, but this is what brings everything back together. That they know you, the only true God, yet we know God in his holiness, in his majesty, in his transcendence, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And Christ, and Jesus. Knowing God in his character is is can, we can be at awe of that. We can, we can feel like we fall short because we do when we, when we understand who God is. But that's not sufficient for eternal life. We also need to know the person that our confidence is in. We also need to know the fact that there's someone that goes between us to satisfy both the justice of God and to then offer us grace in mercy, so like we're reading through Hebrews so that we can go to the throne of grace with confidence, so that we can ask for mercy, 
so that we can ask for help, so that we can look forward to a reward, not because of who we are, but because our confidence is ultimately in the person, the person of Jesus. So we can talk about the, the God of our confidence and how, how re- beyond us he is. We can talk about the dilemma, the fact that he has spoken, but he's spoken to, to sort of reveal to us that we've fallen short, or the, the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of all these things comes down to the person of our confidence. <coughs> the person of our confidence. And so I wanna look at the, I wanna look at the two verses again and highlight a couple of things about the person of our confidence. The reason why so much of our confidence hinges on what happens in this verse is because of who God is, because of the reality that he's actually spoken to us, but he hasn't just spoken to us about his justice, he's spoken to us about his son. Look at what it says again, we'll read, read the two verses. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So we've got a comparison here. He start, we're gonna, you're gonna see a lot of comparisons when we go through the book of Hebrews. This is an old thing. This is the new, real, majestic thing that we're, we're pointing you to. And, and, and we'll see how a lot of the, the stuff in the Old Testament was, was real and was pointing us forward to Christ and who he, who he is and what he's done. But, it's, but it wasn't like the end game. You know, having a temple in the desert on the other side of the world wasn't like God's plan for salvation, but it was to teach us about what God would do in the Son and in the, in the person of Jesus. So he's making a comparison right at the bat, right at the beginning of this, this, this letter or sermon, or we don't really know what it is because it doesn't tell us, but there's guesses. He's making a comparison. He's like, look, God has spoken. And long ago, he says long ago, because at this point it had been... I think a few hundred years since God has said anything, the sort of the end of the era of the prophets was over. So he's looking back and saying, look, God has spoken. He said things and he said those things in the prophets. He said those things through, through mediators who were speaking God's actual words to us. Wonderful thing. But look at what he's doing now. Look at how he's speaking to us now. He's speaking to us now by his son. This is a way bigger deal. This is, this is not in many times and in many ways. This is all at once. This is uniform. This is, this is a, a flood of information about who God is in the person of his son. And, and he's not speaking in his son to the fathers. He's speaking in his son to you. He's communicating everything about himself to you. He says to us. Now he's not speaking to particular people. He's speaking all over the place. He's speaking uniformly in his son to you directly. And it's not in many ways in diverse. It's, it's all at once in the revelation of Jesus himself. This is a big deal. Things have changed. It's like, why is the sun so much greater? 
If he's communicating us now, not in parts, not through prophets, not to someone indirectly, but now in fullness in the Son, directly to you, what makes the Son so wonderful? Why is this sort of an escalation of things? He gives us like a little snippet. He's gonna, the, the whole next chapter is gonna be expanding on this, but he tells us right there, whom, he's like, let me, let me give you a couple little pieces about the son. <coughs> he's appointed the heir of all things. Appointed the heir of all things. And there's a lot sort of packed into that. Jesus has actually accomplished everything that Adam should have accomplished. Jesus actually perfectly obeyed, loved God with all his heart, mind, and soul. Jesus has actually interacted with the world from day one and been nothing but others-oriented. He has actually earned everything and appeased this transcendent God who is perfectly holy, who can't be in the presence of sin, Jesus has actually done everything perfectly and now deserves the reward of an eternal kingdom. Jesus is now the heir of all things. He's accomplished what you have could never accomplish, would never accomplish. The, the son he's communicating to you through has done things that you could never imagine and has now earned the reward of the heir of the eternal kingdom and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the son I'm talking about. That's how I'm communicating to you in a way that's more beautiful and more glorious than I've ever communicated. And then he tells us one other thing. He says, through whom he also created the world. I love how that's just like a side comment. FYI, and he created everything. Um, moving on. And it's a fascinating word. It doesn't actually say the world in the original language. It says the ages. Through whom he has created all time. He's like, I'm not just telling you about the son who showed up on earth and did everything right and is now the heir of all things. You know, that's kind of a big deal. I'm telling you about the son who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God himself, who, who was and is and is to come, who is holy, holy, holy. He's communicating to you directly through God himself. That's the beauty and wonder of the gospel. That's why we can get everything we need to know about who God is in Jesus himself. Because it's God himself. That's how he's communicating to you. We'll talk more about this as we go through the series. But if we were to say, what was, what was the... What's the most important thing that Jesus has communicated to us? As the heir of all things, as the creator God himself in the flesh. Paul says that of first importance is that Christ has died for our sins, according to scriptures, according to the things that have been spoken by God through the prophets, the things that have happened. 
But now he's communicated to us that he's died for our sins. This, this, this dilemma of the, the reality that I'm a failure and that God should justly and rightly punish me for the things that I rebel against him on. God can't let, a, God will never let a single thing go unpunished, which is what Jesus communicates to us on the cross. He's so serious about dealing with your sin. He's so serious about being perfectly just that he nailed his son to a cross. And it wasn't the nails that was the most painful thing. He poured out his own wrath. The holy, holy, holy God in unapproachable light. Jesus was made sin so that he was destroyed by that light. Because that's how serious he takes his justice. But at the same time, that's the basis for offering his grace. That's what it communicates to us. It means there's no more wrath for you. It means that if you hold fast to that confidence until the end, if you cling to that, if your confidence is put in the person and work of Christ, most clearly communicated on the cross, there's a whole lot more communicated, but man, that is the center point of everything that he's done. If you cling to that until the end, you can look forward to a great reward. If you cling to that to the end, you can approach as a sinner the throne of grace with confidence because you're forgiven. If you cling to that to the end, you can actually be transformed and stir one another up towards love and good deeds. That's the beauty of our confidence in Christ himself. That's the beauty of the gospel. And I'm excited that we get to spend 13 weeks talking about where we put our confidence, talking about how wonderful Jesus is. And I pray that the, the spirit would in a supernatural way, begin to shift the things that we cling so tightly to that can be shaken, that can get messed up. He begin to shift our mind and our thinking to what cannot be shaken, to Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you speak. Thank you that we can approach you with confidence because of what your son has done. Lord, help us not forget. <clears throat> help us not forget how majestic and unlike us you are. Help us not forget how unsearchable your ways are. Help us not forget how you tell us that we cannot approach you and yet you bring us into your throne room. Lord, we need to see the wonder and majesty and beauty of you so that we can see the, the wonder of what you've done in your son. Help us consider those things this week. In your name I pray, amen.